So one of my teacher's advice was you must pray four hours a day. Um, and that has turned out not to be physically uh, possible. Um, I had a, another teacher who, uh, who said, just make sure you write one sentence. And um, I've really tried to adhere to that. Um, I find if you sit down long enough to write one sentence, that sentence usually will lead to another and another and another. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 48 of Vine the Pros. In 2018, the first episode of the year. Thank you for coming back to me, and I'm glad to be back with you. Today I have a special treat for you. It is, it's always a special treat, right? I, I say that, and it really is a special treat. This episode has been long overdue, long, long, long overdue. I recorded it in April 2017 when the author Nick Arvin, award-winning author of four novels, came to the job where I work, my job. And he, at my invitation, I organized him to come, came for two days, and he did several presentations to students. Nick is also an engineer, so that's really interesting about him. And over the two days, he talked about one, besides how engineers really need writing and how creative writing can inform his work as an engineer and how his engineering informs his writing, he also talked to students about a short story that he wrote called Along the Highways. It appeared in The New Yorker several years ago. So in this episode, I will present that talk for you in its entirety. And if you are on the Behind the Pros email list, I will send you a special link that has a PDF document on it. And that document is the visual that Nick Arvin is referring to in the presentation. It's actually a copy of the edits that he and the editor at the New Yorker did via fax, right? And he talks about some of the changes that the editor made and requested and some of the changes that he made or didn't make. So I really enjoy this episode and I'm going to just, I'm just not even going to wait. I'm just going to just give it to you right now. Just here, here, here it is. Here, Nick Arvin. Take it, take it. Go, go. Um, I, I grew up in Michigan in a little town called Clio. Um, spelled C-L-I-O. Everyone who's C-L-I-O thinks that's Cleo. They're wrong. Um, it's, uh, the origin story is that uh, Clio is where uh, County Line 10 crosses the railroad. So on the map it was C-L-10, C-L-1-0, C-L-I-O. So that's, that's how small it is, right? It's a tiny little speck on the map. Uh, and then I went to the University of Michigan uh, and I studied engineering. But I had already started writing, and, um, and, and like I, my heart in some ways was with the writing. Um, and I remember my freshman year of uh, college, I thought really hard about switching to an English major. <laughs> and I ended up not doing that, um, in part because I talked to my parents and they're like, yeah, what are you going to do? Right, right, you make a living. Um, and 
and that made sense to me because there was, I knew that there was a specific kind of writing that I wanted to do, um, and that was to write fiction, to write uh, stories. And I, um, I, I, I wasn't particularly interested in journalism. I wasn't particularly interested in an academic career in, in English. Um, and it seemed to me that it would be, uh, since what I wanted to do was write stories, me that an English major wasn't necessarily going to help me do that very much, um, and and once I got out of school, an engineering major was going to be a lot more handy in terms of putting food in the mouth and paying rent. Um, and I was, you know, genuinely interested in uh, the, the technical stuff in engineering. I like physics. I like math. Um, and so it gave me an opportunity to explore those things and. Um, uh, and then, you know, hopefully I can still do some writing. Um, so that's, uh, it's been a, a winding path, but that's kind of how it, it has actually worked out. I, um, teacher mentioned I went to Stanford. I did that as a, I did that as a master's degree after, uh, my undergrad degree. And then, uh, I went to work for Ford and I worked there for about three years, um, I worked on a number of things. I worked on F-150, I worked on uh, the Ford Expedition, I worked on, does anyone remember the Lincoln LS? A couple of people. It was, it was a car, didn't do very well. <laughs> um, it's not my fault. I worked, I worked on the cooling system, it worked fine. Um, so, but then I, uh, I was writing all the time. And um, you know, at that time, I was. Uh, yeah, I look back now, and I feel like I was very young at that time. Um, and I had the the wherewithal to you know, work a, an eight-hour day, and then um, come home and do some writing. And I would uh, I write in. I'll show you. Let's use these. I write longhand. First, first writing is longhand. I write in these little uh, sketchbooks. Um, and so I've been doing that for 20 years. I've got a lot of those. Uh, <laughs> and um, so at that time, I, my goal was to write four pages longhand every day. And um, I made myself do it. You know, I would get home, eat some dinner, and then start writing. And a lot of times I would be up till one in the morning, um, and I'd roll out of bed and go do it again. And uh, you, know, you can do that when you're, you're younger and you're not married, you don't have kids, uh, less constraints. You know, I would, I'd be pretty crabby if I'm getting enough sleep. Um, but again, you're not married. It doesn't matter. Um, and then uh, and I was also taking writing classes. Um, uh, writing press a lot like this. Do you do workshops in here? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So uh, I took some writing workshop classes um, and was you know working on short stories and polishing some up. And I went uh, after I after I'd been at Ford for a couple of years, I started applying to uh, MFA programs, Master of Fine Arts, um, in, in creative writing. There, there
Yeah, the one that let me in was Columbia, but they didn't have any money. Uh, Iowa gave me to go fight them. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, the others were, were bouncing me. Um, and so, so I, I went and did that. So I, I quit Ford, uh, went and worked uh, on my MFA for two years, got my degree. It was a great experience. Um, and, uh, and then I got a grant to go write for another year. Um, so I, I wrote, this, this is my first book. This is uh, In the Electric Eden. It's a book of short stories. Um, and I wrote most of that while I was at Iowa. And then um, uh, I was, so as I was getting done at Iowa, I, um, I started contacting some agents. And um, uh, there were some who didn't like it, uh, but there was one guy, I would, what I would do is send, um, I think, three stories out of the book to an agent with a letter to say, hey, you know, I've got a whole book of these. Let me know if you're interested. Um, and so there was one agent who, who wrote back that he liked them, he'd like to see the rest of the book. Uh, I sent him the rest of the book, and uh, he called me up and said, uh, I love this, and I think I can sell it. Wow. Uh, great. <laughs> um, and he did. It was That was the easiest book to sell of, of my books, uh, ironically, because a book of short stories is supposed to be very difficult to sell. Um, both both to sell to a publisher and then to the publisher to sell to the public. Um, and then, uh, so uh, that came out in, I think, uh, 2003. Um, and uh, around that same time, um, my so I, I finished Iowa, I, I was awarded a grant, which gave me some money to go write for a year. And uh, my brother had moved to Denver around that time, and so I, I moved out to Denver as well. And uh, spent a year working on what became my second book. This is the British cover, um, this is Articles of War, which is about um, a, uh, it's about a GI in Europe during World War II, the short, short, short version. And um, so I was, I was working on that during that year that I had this grant money. Um, and then my grant money ran out, and I needed to make a living again. Um, and like I said, I worked at Ford, so my background was in the automotive industry. And I, uh, I realized there's not much of an automotive industry in Denver. <laughs> um, so I was looking around for uh, what I could do. And um, came across a couple of companies that did uh, forensic engineering that, um, and worked on uh, vehicle accidents. Um, so what they what they doing is is um, they would get hired by insurance companies or by attorneys to look at a car crash, um, a car crash that had already happened, and uh, figure out what had happened in that car crash um, and help them to assign blame. And so we um, well, so I I uh, you know, put them a resume and. Um,
produced a lot of writing. They've read a lot of reports. Um, the, the first step in their process was, well, the first step was to do the analysis, but the first product that they would produce would be a report, which would go to their client and, um, and to a judge. Um, and so they needed reports that, um, that were very clear and you know, conveyed the technical information, but were also uh, readable by judges and ultimately you know, some of these are juries. Um, so you need, you need to be able to communicate um, not just to engineers, but to uh, lay people. Um, so they like that. And uh, so I worked there for um, about three years. Uh, and I remember the, from the very first day on the job, I, I was like, I'm going to end up writing a novel about this. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, really interesting work, um, really dark. Um, and uh, I mean, I guess, you know, one story, just on the first day on the job, I was, uh, my boss gave me this, this thick report that the California Highway Patrol put together on an accident. And it was a, um, it was a rollover, it was a Ford uh, uh, Expedition, uh, one of the tires blew out, it was a left rear tire. And if they were going down the highway at like 65 miles an hour when this tire went. And the uh, vehicle started to move to the left, because the right, left rear tire, you know, you've got less friction there, and so the vehicle starts drifting that way. And um, so the, the driver, goes to steer back into the lane, so she's steering to the right. When you don't have a left rear tire, your car, um, when you try to steer it, it's going to react a lot more differently than it normally would. Um, and specifically, it's going to turn a lot faster than you would expect. Um, so the driver goes to turn back into the lanes, and the vehicle comes around really fast, and then the uh, so Quickly, the, the vehicle starting to come around to you know near the sideways in the lane, and then that left rear wheel where there's no, there's no tire anymore, there's just the metal wheel. It gets into the roadway, and that causes the things to flip over and start spinning down the road. Um, and it's a terrible accident. Um, there were a lot of people in the vehicle. Uh, they were all. Um, and what really freaked me out was uh, I had this report that had a map that the police had uh, put together. They surveyed the whole scene, documenting the locations of all this evidence, uh, the like, divots in the roadway and off the roadway. Um, they had gone through a barbed wire fence. They documented that. They documented um, the locations of the bodies. And on this map, there was this little circle. And I couldn't figure out what the little circle was. Um, and it, like I said, it was, a, it was a thick report. I had to dig around in the report for like an hour to finally identify what that little circle was. And it was the head of one of the, mm. it was actually the driver, um, who'd been decapitated as she came out of the vehicle. And uh, I mean, just made me feel sick, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to my boss, and <laughs> first day at the job, with my boss, I was like, you've got to warn me if they're like a captain of heads. 
<laughs> and I remember he just kind of looked at me. And I had no idea what that look meant at the time. In hindsight, that was the look of, that happens all the time on this job. Like, that's the way nature works. So you're going to have to be used to it. Um, so uh, really, uh, really interesting work, very dark. Um, and so I worked there for about three years. Uh, that is the, the job that the, my second novel, The Reconstructionist, comes out of. Um, and it's about, uh, um, it's about a young engineer who gets into that work. Uh, he uh, ends up in this bizarre uh, love triangle with his, his boss's wife. Um, and, and meanwhile, he's also got uh, a history with his brother who was killed in a car accident. Um, and he ends up kind of going back to the people with that accident. Um, but it uh, it ties into this story, so I'll say a little more about it. That one of the things I wanted to do in that book was I wanted to give the reader some of the sensation of that feeling of working on these accidents. Um, and you know, I didn't want the book to be a, just a deep dive into one accident reconstruction. I wanted to give the readers a little bit of the feeling of what it's like to actually do work and have all these accidents that you work on over time kind of piling up in your head. Um, and the other thing that I wanted was for the uh, um, for the reader to, um, or what I wanted was, you know, it's a book about car accidents, about uh, car crashes. I wanted to tie it a little bit to the, the idea of uh, the Great American Road novel. Um, and I wanted to have these characters dragging around a lot. <laughs> um, so, a good chunk of the, the book involves uh, the, this kind of bizarre uh, uh, sequence of uh, uh, the younger guy following the older guy as they go around between these parks and sites that they look up past. Um, and uh, it ties to the story that you guys read, um, because I was, I was working on this book. And uh, this, the, the reconstruction, Reconstructionist ended up taking um, a long time to write. It spent about seven years on it. And um, part of the reason it took so long was I was, uh, you know, I had all this, I had this great material from my, my job. Um, these really interesting stories. Um, but I, uh, I didn't have a, a plot with, I didn't have characters really to begin with, and I was just trying to find all those things, right? And it turns out that takes a long time. Um, and uh, so it was, uh, there was, there were a lot of, uh, I mean, I must have written 100 pages that ended up getting cut one way or another. Um, it was a very exploratory process of writing different paths and um, deciding that they weren't working going back and trying something different. Um, one of the things that I I need to have in my head when I'm working on a story is uh, some notion of the ending. So that'll be, I mean, the very, very beginning of a story is usually an image 
or a situation, and sometimes it's a situation, and I think it's interesting. Um, and then I'll, I'll start exploring it, but one of the first things I'll try to come up with is some notion of the ending that I'm working towards in the story. Um, and, you know, every writer's different. Some writers don't need that. Some writers just um, move things along and they go somewhere interesting. I find if, I, if I'm trying to write a story and I just try to let them see, you know, go wherever they may go, they don't go anywhere at all. They, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> so I need, I need an ending that, that I can kind of move things towards. Um, and what I had in mind in the ending is basically the story along the highways. Like I had that ending in mind. And as I was working on the novel, at some point I realized that ending didn't work for the, the novel that I had in mind. It was kind of, you know, it's a little, uh, the word that's pretty much silly, it's not quite the right word, but what it was, uh, you know, the, the book became very serious. There, there's, um, there's humor in it, I think, um, but this, this wasn't the right ending for that book. Um, and so I, I said to myself, fine, you know, I'll just come up with a new ending. But I, I, like, I wasn't able to get that ending out of my head. It was like stuck. And um, I wasn't able to make any progress on the, on the book because I had this wrong ending stuck in my head that I'm trying to go for it. And it was a mess. Um, <laughs> so, I, so I decided, well, I'll, I'll take that ending and turn it into a short story. And maybe that'll get it out of my head. Um, and so that's how I ended up writing this, this story. Um, and I went through uh, a lot fewer revisions than most of my short stories do. Um, and I think that's partly because I've been kind of working through it in my head as a part of working on the book for, that's why I've probably been working on it for a couple of years. Um, so I had, had a lot of ideas kind of baked into it when I first sat down um, that being said, it still went through, in my computer, I think I've got six or seven revisions of it. Most of my stories end up going <coughs> to more like 12 or 13, yeah, over 10 um, levels of revision in my computer. Um, so I did, uh, I did go into my computer and pull out that first revision. I thought it might be interesting for you guys to look at. Uh, one bit of good news is, you know, I had so this story came out in 2005. I think I reread it once a few years ago, but I'd basically forgotten it. Um, <laughs> so I reread it this morning. Like, oh, that's actually a pretty good story. <laughs> um, I, was, I was glad that I still liked it. Um, oh, this is really soon. There's a, a knob at the, yeah. All right, so you can see the title change, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I just brought the first couple pages. I'll go ahead and read those. Ellis saw the familiar green convertible, saw his friend Boggs driving, saw Heather seated in the side box. 
But the combination of these elements had the appearance of illusion, and for the first several miles, Ellis followed them without any conscious desire except to corroborate what he was seeing and to reassure himself of his own sanity. Heather was his girlfriend. He had never introduced Heather to Boggs. He had never even mentioned her to Boggs. And until now, he had assumed that Boggs had no thought or suspicion whatsoever of Heather's existence. This are, like, I, I haven't reread this before I came in here. Like, this feels so much more stiff than, uh, than you know, for the beginning of the story when it's done. Watching Boggs put his arm around Heather's shoulders, Ellis experienced a white, bitter shock. He thought, I don't even know how long the end of the world has been forming around me. <laughs> he followed them onto I-75 North, staying at a distance, trying to keep a couple of cars between himself and them. When they had pushed out of the Detroit suburbs and were halfway to Flint, he knew where they were going. He had followed this route many times. Heather's family was relatively wealthy, and they kept a cottage on Lake Leelanau. They called it a cottage, although it had three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a large living room, which stepped down into a den at a slightly lower level, and a broad wooden patio that looked <coughs> along to a lake. In summer, Heather spent better than half her days at the lake. He had vivid, intimate memories of himself with Heather there, the dapple of sunlight on the patio, the lake water lying still and flat in the early morning. It's interesting to me, like, so it's cut out of here. Like, <laughs> turn that off. <laughs> Um, so the actual story, or the uh, actual is not the right word, right? The final story. Uh, the final story begins: the two people inside the convertible, the combination of the two of them together. Yeah, I love M dashes. Because you guys have probably never even used an M dash. You don't even know what an M dash is, but an M dash is that long dash um, in that first sentence, and it's called an M dash. Because it's the length of the letter M. Oh, um, oh I didn't know. Or it's supposed to be. I think that uh, that one looks like it's longer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, Depends. Yeah, on. there may be a double M dash. But um, <laughs> that's that's how you can remember the, the names and the difference between an N dash and an M dash. An N dash is the short dash. Like uh, in that, at the end of that paragraph, car clock has an N dash. In um, and the M dash is the long dash of the first sentence. And um, uh, M dashes are are wonderful um, because they're not very well defined in terms of how you should use them in the grammar. Um, <laughs> and so it gives you a lot of freedom. Um, but, I mean, you do have to be careful. You can't just start throwing M dashes around really nilly. Um, <laughs> But if, if you're a if you're a serious writer, uh, pay attention to where writers use them and start playing around with them because they, um, you know, this this you could either stick the combination of the two of them together. You could stick that phrase between commas maybe, um, but I think it would be confusing. Um, at least not as clear that it's reference to the, the previous phrase, two people inside the convertible. Um, and you know, the other way, the way I'd really be inclined to handle it, if I couldn't use M dashes, would be to put it in parentheses. Um, that's really what it's doing. It's kind of uh, 
something about the parentheses that that feels more formal and um, is uh, it, it, it makes yeah you know, the level a little bit more yeah mm -hmm. that's, <laughs> that's the phrase I'm looking for thank you yeah, yeah that 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 dash visually just gives you like visually flow into that phrase. Thank you very much. Um, I'm seeing bunches now. Yeah. Yeah. I use them a lot. Uh, so, uh, but the first draft didn't have any. You know, it's it's something that that tends to come into my drafts more as I'm, you know, I'll, I'll start to take uh, a phrase. You know, maybe I have two sentences. Maybe maybe the original, and it wasn't in the first draft. Maybe in draft three, it said something like, "The two people inside the convertible had the appearance of an illusion." It was the combination of the two of them together that made it seem that way. Um, and you know, the M dash gives you a way that flows that allows you to take those two things and, and merge them together. Um, the rest of that paragraph was Graham switched lanes to follow them to a left turn. Off was down, and he watched the mouth of the driver, Doug, open and close, and watched the passenger, Lindsay, nod and laugh. The wind fidgeted with her hair, and her gaze lingered on Doug's opening and closing face with more inexplicable intimacy. Uh, I like that phrase, opening and closing face. Uh, for the first several miles, Doug pursued them through the car, the car clock suburbs of Detroit, almost corrupt, corroborate what he was seeing and verifying the same. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it reads much more smoothly than the first first draft. The, the other thing that strikes me um, is just that it's it, it's it's synthesizing the information. Um, I think I think a lot of the information that the first draft that I read here is, is kind of synthesized and applied there. But it also strikes me like there's some couple of phrases. In the first draft, that just got cut entirely. That are good phrases, um, and and that's that's another. It's like the, the heartbreaking aspect of revision is um, is just striking out phrases, sentences, even characters um, that are really good on their own, but are not in telling your story for it are not a necessary component to making it progress. Um, I wanted to pull, throw up the end. So this is this is the last two pages of the uh, that that first draft. Um, so uh, this uh, you never saw Boggs again. Last encountered Heather in the Detroit airport. Saw her seat. Apparently, in this first draft, I felt this, this. I felt like I needed to keep going past the end of the story as it is, and you know, give a history of how everybody turned out. Um, <laughs> and uh, the other thing that I think there's, there's a lot more references to his brother. I was just skimming through that first draft. Oh, the other thing to notice is this is 32 pages. Um, Whereas the, uh, the published story, it's a little hard to tell if you're reading it from an online draft or just, but, um, 
that's uh, reminding for me that it's always a, it's an accordion process of uh, things. Um, it may start small or it may start big, uh, and uh, but as you kind of realize what's essential, you cut some stuff out, and then you read it again, and it feels skimpy in certain areas, and you add on to those. And over a series of drafts, um, yeah, I'm working at this paper I'm working on now that had uh, ballooned up to 50 pages or so, um, and I recently put it back down. Um, going through it, it just I, I, you know, I was going through those 50 pages, and so much of it. So the other, the other, the thing I want to tell you guys is key to revision. I mean, if you're serious about this stuff, is time. And it's something that you just can't create in a class like this. Um, but the ability to take a piece of writing and put it aside for uh, you know at least a couple months, um, ideally a couple of years, um, <laughs> so that uh, the goal is so that you've forgotten it. And when you go back to it, you don't know what, you know, it's like when I reread this story this morning. Um, I, there's a lot of it I didn't remember. And so I was approaching it much more like uh, an outside reader than my kid off. And so that, you know, this, this 50 page story I was talking about, I, I went back to it and so much of it felt like garbage to me. Uh, but there was like this kind of core idea in the middle that uh, I, I really liked. And so I you know, pulled that out and wrote just enough around that to preserve that. At this point, I think it's pretty good, but um, you know, I'm, I, the other thing I'll do is I'll submit something, I'll take a story and submit it 50 places. If it collects some rejections, then I'll stick it back in the box for a couple of years, go back two years later. Like, oh, this should have been a 50 page story. <laughs> um, so I've been talking for a while. Uh, <laughs> any questions on any of that? I'm not familiar with at all with the editing process, but when you send a manuscript to an editor to read, do, and if they were to accept it, do they edit your work at all? I have a perfect answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I brought with me was, uh, so this the story you read was in the New Yorker. Um, you, so, yeah, I don't know how familiar you're some of you guys are with this stuff. Like, The New Yorker is the place to publish a short story. Um, there used to be more places. Uh, um, but, you know, the, people, people have more things to do with their lives now, and, and they have more ways to absorb stories. Um, so there, there used to be a lot of outlets that published a lot of short fiction. Um, New Yorker, the Saturday Evening Post, the, pretty much all the glossy magazines would publish fiction. And um, it's really, it's fallen out of favor in, in the glossy magazine world. Uh, the New Yorker publishes uh, a story per issue. Um, Harper's Magazine publishes a story. And Esquire published one every once in a while. Um, a couple other outlets of Atlantic will publish one every once in a while. Um, but 
writers I really love um, are writers who publish regularly in the New Yorker. And um, so when I got a story in the New Yorker, I was like, oh, wow, now, now I am the shit. <laughs> I'm going to be publishing in the New Yorker for the rest of my life. And it hasn't worked out that way. Um, but uh, so I was, I was really excited when uh, they took this story. And it, it went through my agent um, to them. They, they, they're just about the only outlet I think that'll only read stuff that comes through. Oh, whoa. I didn't know they were not poetry. Yeah. I, I mean, they have a slush pile, and in theory, they go through it, but I, my understanding is they basically never publish anything. Right? Hmm. Um, and uh, so, super excited. Uh, they think one of the nice things is once they take it, you know, they publish every week, so they'll publish your piece pretty quickly. Um, and there were, there were two levels of editors there. There was uh, a woman named Karen Besser, who's not there anymore, who was uh, who did a first round with me on the story. And then uh, Deborah Treesman, who I think still edits fiction there, um, she went through the story. So this this is uh, <laughs> what they sent to me. Wow. The reason it looks like crap is it was fast to me. Uh, this was a while ago. Um, I was reading, reading, rereading the story. I was contemplating the changes in technology just since this story was published. I mean, at this point, people have flip phones. Um, you know, you kind of want to tell them to just pull up Google Maps or whatever, but they, they couldn't have done that. Um, and I was, I was remembering, too, when I was talking to, to Karen, the editor here, she, um, she was telling me, uh, have any of you read Edward P. Jones? He's, um, uh, he's a great writer. Uh, he wrote a book called The Known World, which was in the uh, 10 years ago or something. And uh, he was, around the time this showed up in The New Yorker, he was publishing some stories there. And so uh, the editor was telling me that he, um, he's kind of a reclusive guy. He lived in, in an apartment that um, didn't have a phone in his apartment. <laughs> and so when they were working through his stories, he would um, go to the park. There was a payphone there. And uh, call in from the payphone. Yeah, he was actually dropping coins in the payphone. And so she could hear the, the birds and stuff in the background. And then every once in a while, his, you know, his coins would run out. And uh, he would just drop the phone and wander off to ask somebody for some coins and show up again. <laughs> um, so, uh, but anyway, uh, this, this is the kind of edits I was getting from the New Yorker. And what's going on here, uh, it, like these are, she's adding and, she's replacing the and while. I'm, uh, I'm saying okay. Let's go ahead and do that. Uh, down here, they're indicating, I think it says want rep. Not sure where the other one, I think she's indicating that something is a repeated word. And so step is an editing um, word that means leave alone. <laughs> um, funny and ridiculous. And so in here, I'm, I'm writing some additional text going in here to replace some stuff that I've lined out. Um, so you can see, you know, it's, it's pretty
pretty detailed level of editing, line by line, fairly dense in some places. Um, the other thing I remember was going on here was that they wanted me to rework the ending somewhat. I don't remember if I actually did that here. So I <laughs> so they check with you first. They don't just cut things and then publish it. No.
for how who. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and so uh, I work there. It, it, one of the things I like about this company is they give me uh, the flexibility to work about 32 hours a week. So that's a little less than full time. And that frees up a little bit of time for me. Um, I had a, another teacher who, uh, who said, just make sure you write one sentence a day. And um, I've really tried to adhere to that. Um, I find if you sit down long enough to write one sentence, that sentence usually will lead to another and another and another. Um, you know, even if you're sitting down grudgingly to write one goddamn sentence, um, you end up writing a paragraph. And um, so even if, uh, the end of the, if it's the end of the day, I'm you know, getting in bed, I'll still some sentences, but um, to make sure your mind is engaged with the problems of the story that you're working on, and so that you're thinking about it. Um, you know, I think there's a, some work that goes on in your subconscious when you sleep, um, and, or just, uh, you know, when you're driving to work or uh, biking work or do, um, you know, your mind's working through that stuff and that stuff. So, uh, I, but your actual question. Um, <laughs> I, I have a book, uh, a novel um, that is uh, kind of a, a boys' adventure novel set during the War of 1812. Um, it's really, really fun, kind of dark. Um, that uh, I'm done with. My agent's uh, trying to find a home for it right now. Um, and I'm working on a book of stories, I think, uh, along the highways we go into it. Um, along with, uh, I'm, I'm struggling right now, I need you know, one or two more stories, so I'm trying to put those together. And then I'm, I'm also starting to send stuff out to the journals and So um, I need some other way to make it. Um, 
So yeah, it's and it, you know if if writing fiction is what you want to do, it's, it's worth thinking about you know what what can you kind of train for that can be a job that you don't have to work full time. Um, and looking back, I think being a PA or something like there are a lot of health career jobs where you can work three days a week.
you know, he convinced them to, to throw a little bit of money at me to option it. And then um, they were talking like $10,000 per year. And then um, they, uh, he would write the pilot script, and then he needed to get a channel to buy into it. Um, so he, he wrote the pilot script and then shopped it to uh, HBO. Um, and nobody picked it up. So that was the end of that. So yeah, I've done, I actually wrote my own uh, <laughs> screenplay version of Arms of War. Uh, it's an experiment, and I, I have some interesting screenwriting. I'm planning to dabble in it again at some point.
interesting with that stuck with a manager revision. So um, it's just uh, the nature of the process. It is accurate. Um, it's a little bit less so over time because I have to cut stuff out enough times to know that that's part of the process and to know that I can always write more. But the exciting thing is to know where I want to go. Like if if, uh, if I can cut 40 out of 50 pages but know what I want, like that's exciting. Because then, uh, then I feel like I'm on to something, and like I can, I can, if I know where I want to go, I can quickly write those additional pages. Um, it's the uh, kind of thrashing around. I'm not sure what to do, where to go. And that's really much more really possible. Yeah. So, um, and so for fiction writer and you also engineer, do you want to write it more? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. It, it, like, you know, really, really great fiction has that quality of surprise, right? That um, uh, the where something unexpected happens, where a character does something that, that, that somehow feels right, but also isn't what you would have expected them to do. Um, and when you when you have an engineer's mindset, that can be hard to find. <laughs> you, you want things to follow a logical, rational process, and you know. Um, so that's uh, that's that's what I, I love about writing is is finding those connections and finding those swerves and those surprises. Um, and that's that's part of what takes so long and why it's such a long process um, for me is uh, you know the first draft is is more predictable. It's like you know this this happens and then this happens and then this happens, and uh, it doesn't feel alive, right? And um, and it's only by noodling around on it and letting it sit in the back of your head or putting aside for a while and coming back to it that you start to find those surprises. Uh, 
else that we go back to. I can't remember if I did that specifically here or not. But also writing it down, even if you don't go back to the words on the page, you can press this with your Yeah. Um, do you, like, are you, are, do you think you would have gone back to Ford, or are you happy like, with the change that you had in your life? Uh, I'm happy with it. I, I love Denver. Um, and uh, I didn't love working at Ford. Ford was uh, it's such a big company, really hard to feel like you're, um, you're having much of an impact as one person there. Um, the, uh, the forensic engineering I was doing was fascinating, um, but also a little bit soul deadening. Um, you, know, you can only look at so many decapitated heads before um, the part of your brain that finds the horrifying starts to turn off a little bit. Um, and, and it wasn't just decapitated heads. I mean, part of what was really hard there was uh, we were reading depositions from people who have been in accidents. And you know, the, the ways that these accidents have affected people's lives was really terrifying. Um, so uh, the, I, you know, a job's a job on some level. Like, I mean, I, I love writing because I can do what I want there. Um, uh, and you do other jobs for pay, part of the reason you get paid is because you put up with stuff. Um, so the job I have now, I, the, what I like about it is we, we design things like they build um, in some cases. Um, and uh, so you feel like you're proving uh, something that's um, significant, you know, stuff that actually is built. Um, and it's, uh, there's stories in there too, you know. you know, hard enough to find time to write when it's a full-time job, and so I was wondering, a lot of publishers want people to promote their works, which means going to bookstores and reading. Yeah. And I didn't notice anything on the schedule that you're going to Barnes & Noble over here to sell some, some. So I was wondering, you know, how or if you can work that in. I'm trying to think. I didn't see your... You know, I know the tattered cover. Is yeah. That, did you go to the tattered cover and read, or that yeah. bed and breakfast? There's a place that's kind of an Airbnb bookstore downtown Denver. I can't think of its name off the top of my head. Anyway, it's a bookstore. It has a cafe in it. And, yeah. Um, new one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I was just, you know, have you gone beyond? Have you have you made your road trips to do more of the yeah. promotion, which sometimes can result in movie people and who depending right. on where you, you are. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do as much of that as I can. A lot of that is done um, I mean the so the publishers at this point uh, spend less and less money sending people around than the back book stores. Um, especially if you're uh, you know, if if Stephen King comes to the Barnes Noble there, they're gonna sell a lot of Stephen King books. Um, Nick Harvard shows up out there, they're probably not going to sell a lot. So for, for the value, um, the value for them may be if, if you know, you can pocket a newspaper into running an article related to the fact that Nick Harvard is going to be in that bookstore. 
think that's going to be useful for our, our, our writing classes yeah. because it's so sometimes when you teach writing it's like I'm going to be an engineer I don't need writing the first time I met an engineer and I was tentative about saying I was an English teacher he said are you kidding we write more than you do yeah. <laughs> so, so the percentage of writing is kind of stunning yeah it's a lot of writing it really is so it's good to have your your article like he's an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if if you're a bad writer, it really holds you back. It yeah. really does. Um, you, you mean you don't have to be a great writer, but you have to be able to communicate ideas effectively. And um, if you can't do that, and, and I don't, I mean, I, you know, I think a class like this is, is really helpful. Um, no matter what your career is, you know, you're going to be presenting emails, you're going to be uh, writing, who knows what. We're almost certainly going to be sending emails, right? And um, the ability, you, you need to be able to look at your own words and uh, see them with enough clarity to be able to edit them. Um, and then you also, you know, this is where the creative writing part comes in, and you need to be able to emphasize with and read it from their perspective. Um, and you talk about audience, you, know, you need to know who that audience is. Yeah. Um, to be able to, to know what they are bringing to reading. You know, reading reading a text is a, it's a joint project. The, the author brings energy to it, the reader's bringing energy to it too. And they, um, they have to put some work into interpreting those words. And you have to be able to anticipate what kind of work they're going to be able to do have to be able to, um, to, on one hand, not be wasting their time, and on the other hand, not be engaging them to play the game so. um, of the actual plot of this story, um, it wasn't really a love triangle at the end, was it? Like, that's not where it ended up, like... Right. It was more like when I read the ending, it was more, wasn't he trying to, he was just trying to get closure for his brother's past, right? Like he was trying to step out of his shadow. Yeah, or even more, uh, there was a line at the end of this, um, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's such a uh, restrained, tame guy, um, and this whole sequence of events forces him to step out of that, and uh, there's a line at the end about like a problem of your skin, blood, Yeah, it's like very not himself. Right. I mean, the whole thing's a fiasco. It's yeah. really embarrassing, but at least it gets him uh, out of his little shell. Does it just get him out of the shell? Because your first paragraph it seems like a setup for foreshadowing. Like the last clause. Um, infinitive clause. Oh, right. Yeah, there's the, that's the other thing. But I, don't know. <laughs> I think we're all a little crazy, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's just a matter of what level. But you say verifying. It's not even to determine if he's, it's for him to verify. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. True. Um, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think he will find his right mind again. <laughs> if anyone finds him in the middle of nowhere yeah, right. <laughs> we're on the other side of Nick Arden at Behind the Pros I hope you enjoyed it
I also wanted to tell you something really cool about this episode as I was preparing it. I had just ordered issues 50 and 51 of McSweeney's Quarterly Concern. That's the print journal of McSweeney's. You know how I feel about McSweeney's internet tendency. So I ordered those two issues. And as I was searching for the secret document that I'm going to email you if you're on the Behind the Pearls email list, I did a search of my Google inbox and an email from McSweeney's came up promoting their issue 51. And I said, hmm, why is the name Arvin coming up in that email? And I opened the email and scrolled down further and came to the table of contents, which they had reprinted in the email. And the very first story was the interview by Nick Arvin. Here it is right there. Can you see it? The interview by Nick Arvin. And I was like, what? I just, I just transcribed this man's podcast. And here is his short story in McSweeney's, which is actually a very nice journal. If I do say so myself, it's hardcover. You hear it here? Nice texture. I mean, if you're a book person, this is definitely worth the money. $30, $26, you know, if you order it and $30 and some change by the time you pay for uh, tax and um, what do you call that stuff? Shipping. I don't know if there's tax, but definitely shipping, but it's definitely worth it. And I think I will subscribe to Quarterly Concern. Something nice to have on your bookshelf. So there's that plug. No pay for this. But this is just true. It's a nice journal. Um, Okay, we're almost out of here. I do want to tell you a quick check-in on the way out. I submitted 37 pieces last year. I got accepted 20, 19.44% of the time. 19.44% of the time I received acceptances. Also, I am working with an agent on my writing Modern Love book idea, and he has seen uh, my proposal, and he requested some edits, and I sent them to him, and I'll be working with him again in the end of January to further this idea that I told you guys about, and I am diligently trying to crack the Modern Love code for all of us to see if there's any way that we can increase our chances of success for publication in the column and basically anywhere, right? Because it's all about good writing, expressing your story in a way that people are gonna want to be engaged and feel provoked to some type of emotion by it. Yep, okay. So, Again, follow me at Keisha Whitaker. Uh, Everything about Nick will be in the show notes. And I hope that you have a good week, a good couple weeks. Next episode is featuring a renowned essayist and author. His initials are PL. PL. Make sure that you are subscribed on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you're getting the podcast. Make sure that you're on the email list because I will have some goodies coming up for you in the next few weeks and for the rest of the year. So until next time, listen, learn, and write. 